Welcome back to Birthing and Justice. I'm your host, Dr. Ruth D'Souza. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Bunwarung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. I'd like to pay my respects to elders both past and present of so-called Australia and extend that respect to any First Nations listeners tuning in today. I'm really delighted to be joined by a friend of mine today, Dr. Sapna Samant. Sapna is a GP, writer, filmmaker, producer and mum based in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, New Zealand. To add to the many hats she wears, she's also an activist and she's passionate about telling migrant and refugee stories. Today we'll be unpacking equity in the healthcare system and creative media industry and hear about Sapna's experience of being an adoptive parent. So Sapna, why do you care about birthing? Well, of course, it's, it's a, um, how do I say, you can't have humankind without, without birthing. And if we don't respect the people who are birthing and people and the babies that come out, then, you know, we, we, we're, we're just right from the beginning, we're disrespecting our own selves. So, of course, for me, that's really important, birthing. So tell me, where are you and what are you doing at the moment? I am based in Tamaki Makoto, uh, Auckland, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I am a GP, four days of the week, and a filmmaker, writer, producer, and activist (laughs) the rest of the time. And a single mum. Yes, a mum. That is... Yes. It's always happening, you know, that never stops. Yes. So tell me, what brought you to all these things that you're doing and the work that you're doing now? Okay, so a little bit about my journey. I came to Aotearoa 2001. I used to be a GP back in India that time before I came here in Mumbai. Uh, And when I came here, I was quite bored of medicine. It had disillusioned me practicing as a GP in India where money is the sole thing. You know, that's the, the only reason why people apparently practice medicine anymore. And coming from a family where my grandfather and my father were so respected in the community and who had been doing a lot of work, you know, they never bothered about money. If they had, we would have had a mansion somewhere, but we didn't. <laughs> it was quite disillusioning, yes. So when I came to New Zealand to Aotearoa, I was... um. I just didn't want to practice medicine and my other love was films. But growing up in the 80s in India, you know, in a, in a middle class family where go- all the good girls had to do, you know, medicine or engineering or accounting or whatever it was. That's what I did. I've always loved writing. There was, there was no, it's not a career. It's not a career where you make money. And so um, I was quite pleasantly surprised to discover that these things are all accessible over here um, at the University of Auckland. So um, I gave up medicine. Um, I did not want to requalify over here in Aotearoa, do the same thing of which I was quite bored and disillusioned. I think that would be my primary reason why I gave it up. Um, I told myself that if I ever got back to medicine, it, it is something that will come to me rather than forcing myself to do it. Yes, and I did a master's in film, TV and media studies from the University of Auckland because I loved it. Yeah, that was my first master's. Yeah, and you've, <laughs> you're doing a second master's, hey? Yes, I've just finished, submitted my short film, uh, Master's in Directing Drama 
uh, at the University of Auckland again. And um, it was Shuchi Kothari who pushed me to do it. So Shuchi was my teacher, screenwriting teacher, way back when I did my master's uh, 2004. And she's been following my work. Obviously, you know, she's sort of the mother hen of all the Asian practitioners in, in Aotearoa. And she's been following my work and she suggested, she had told me way back then that I should be doing directing as, uh, you know, going back to university and studying directing. But I was not ready that time. I just really wanted to get out into the world and practice, you know, practice my media work. But then when she told me again a couple of years ago, she said, you should really go back and do directing drama. So that's when I, I applied and I got in and I... I made a short film. Yeah, and, and 2,000 word exegesis. <laughs> it's university. You can't not do it. Well done. So tell me about the kind of storytelling uh, work that you've been doing. And I, I'm imagining that it's enriched your experience as a doctor because you're, you're back doing medicine. So how's that all happened? Okay, so it's part of how I got back into medicine. So let me just first start with, so after I, I finished and I had already started doing content for Radio New Zealand at that time, and I continued doing that work, uh, my stories were, I was the first person of color, well, Asian, to be doing um, all sorts of stories for Radio New Zealand. So I was quite fortunate that, you know, there were no labels at that time that this one is Asian, therefore should be doing just Asian content. I was doing stuff for, I did lots of Spectrum documentaries. I did stuff for a slot called Society, which used to be broadcast on Friday afternoons. A whole lot of stuff. I did special series, summer series, all kinds of stuff. Um, and interacted with lots of people. My main focus always has been migrants. Uh, and, and not necessarily migrants of color, but any migrants. And obviously, if you have the privilege of being in there in a mainstream broadcaster, then to me, it was just obvious that we needed to tell our stories. And, you know, there was no Asian fund funding for Asian content at that time. There was no funding. There was just one program on Sunday mornings on TVNZ at that time, as you remember correctly, you know, back in the day. <laughs> it was... Um, boring it was very that that program it was very it sort of endorsed the model minority stereotype and you know it didn't shift anything uh and i just really wanted to talk more about what people are actually doing in the community and radio affords you that privilege to be you know not think in visual terms but just in sound and i continued doing that work i was uh, you know back then uh, i don't remember the year but i was I did, I, I wore a burqa, a full burqa, and I had a recorder underneath that, and I went around Auckland recording reactions to what I was wearing. Uh, this was, I think, perhaps 2006, maybe? I don't, I don't remember. So so these were the kinds of things I did. I, I did a lot of work, so refugee stories, you know, and, and through doing those stories, I encountered Refugees and Survivors, which is an organization here working with refugee mental health. And Gary Poole, the CEO at that time, he took me aside. Well, he took me out to lunch one day and he said that you should really get back to medicine because, you know, you're multicultural, multilingual, and we're going to need those skills in primary care at some point. 
So um, it had been a few years since I was doing media content and I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. Why not? It's, it was still expensive. It still required a lot of work, lots of barriers, but my parents were happy <laughs> for a change. <laughs> I was not doing some useless thing like films, you know. Yeah, they supported me. My sister supported me. I continued to make films, um, do radio. And I gave the exams. I sat the exams. Um, I passed these exams. And um, and I, I really want to talk about this, the kind of barriers that are put up for people like me who, you know, after a 10-year gap, getting back into medicine and ticking all the boxes, um, all the criteria, clearing everything in the first shot at the first, you know, the first time you do it. And the medical council refused to, there was a GP pathway and I applied to work on the GP pathway when I, you know, cleared everything. Well, no, actually, let me go a little bit before that. I was um, required to sit the English language IELTS exam and I tried to get a, um, exemption what is the word for it? Yes. Because I was, I had a master's degree from Auckland University. I was working for Radio New Zealand. I was doing so much content. I'd written for the Herald, you know, so many things. And in spite of that, they just wanted me to sit an exam. Uh, so I wrote to them and asked them for an exemption. And they said, no, because you have a degree in film and we need you to have a degree in health. You cannot ask your film tutors to, uh, you know, write you a letter of support. I just thought it was completely ridiculous that they were asking me, somebody who's already fluent and who, you know, is already working in the mainstream to sit the exam. And I did do the IELTS exam and the lady who was testing my verbal skills recognized my voice from radio. And... <laughs> And she asked me, she said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, this is what I'm required to do. Um, and she was, you know, she just shook her head because it was just completely ridiculous that they're asking people to sit this exam. Instead, if they had asked, if the medical council had asked me to do something in Tereo or had asked me to, to write something about the Treaty of Waitangi, that would have been an understandable thing. Because we, of course, need to know more about that. It's a, it's a core requirement, I would say, of working in the health sector over here. Because, uh, you know, you have Irish and English graduates coming through. Nobody asks them to sit an exam or nobody cares if they know anything about the treaty or how do you even have the respect, courtesy to ask somebody how I pronounce your name none of that and you know they're asking me to sit an english exam and i got nine out of ten a bit disappointing i should have got 11 but anyway <laughs> you know the overachieving asian you know <laughs> how come you're only third in class why not first that's what i used to get from know, my parents i should have had the gold medal <laughs> only only third in your class like yeah so Amazing how that one conversation, you know, with Gary, who I know well, uh, got you on this path back in, into medicine. So then, then what happened after your exam? Yes. Yeah, so after after that, the medical council. So that was before before you know when I was sitting. After I cleared everything, the council refused to even register me 
they said that you have 10 years, a big 10 year gap. So uh, you need to go back to the hospital. Uh, we are not going to register, allow you to practice on the GP pathway, uh, which is extremely frustrating because this was a pathway they had created. You know, this was a pathway where I had cleared every single requirement and they still said that I couldn't practice because I had a 10 year gap. That was not written on the pathway criteria. It did not say anywhere that if you have a gap, you cannot practice. So that was on them, not on me. And they still refused to register me. So I wrote to the board uh, and I said, this is a pathway that you created. And now you are just breaking your own rules. Um, I remember that afternoon really well. I was ready to pack up my bags and I said, I'm, I'm going to Australia. You know, I'll practice media over there. I'll do whatever. There's so much going on, SBS, et cetera, this, that. Yeah. And I, I got an email from them to say that you have been allowed to, you know, you can practice on the GP pathway. And that was one hurdle cleared. Then I had to start applying for jobs and nobody knew what to do with me because they had never heard of this pathway. And they were, again, you know, nobody wanted to train somebody who has had a 10-year gap. Uh, but Dr. Brian Betty, who's now the with the medical, I'm sorry, with the GP college in New Zealand, he took up that challenge and he offered me a job at Puritua Union in Cannons Creek in Wellington. So I packed up my bags. Instead of going to Australia, <laughs> I went to Ponike and started working at Porirua Union. You know, it was, it was, I just loved working over there because that was a dream practice for me. The reason I went back to medicine was to be able to work with refugees and migrants of, you know, from ethnic backgrounds. And, and Porirua Union is still that place. It was incredible. I was working with, you know, um, uh, gang members. I was working with the kind of stuff that you only read as a, as a, you know, a privileged migrant living in, in, in Auckland. You only read these stories. But working in, in Porirua, at, at Porirua Union in Cannons Creek, you see this. You see the poverty. You see, you literally, you know, you're going on home visits to to homes where a young woman is looking after her children. She's looking after her partner's children. The partner's in prison. She's got no transport. She cannot even go to a medical center to get her kids vaccinated or to, you know, um, any simple treatment. Children have scabies. Children have, there's no food on the table. There's eczema everywhere. There's, it's just awful. There's no money to pay for phone calls. And, you know, you're sitting over there looking around. You think this is, this is not what Aotearoa is sold to be. You know, you're right in the thick of it. And I just really, really loved it. Not because it was, it was, it, it gave me job satisfaction. Just the whole purpose of being a doctor for me is that. I think it's so wonderful that you found that joy in your profession again, you know, and returned to kind of what your, um, you know, your father and grandfather had been passionate about, you know, health equity. It's, it's so wonderful that you did that circular journey back to it, hey? So just just to change tack a little bit, but I wonder if we can jump into your experience of mothering so that people who are listening will go, 
you know, <laughs> they'll remember what this podcast is about because um, you, you, you and I could talk in a lot of different directions. And so, you know, you and I, we could lead each other up the garden path quite a lot, I think. So let me ask you what happened, you know, what, what has led you to becoming someone who's permanently fostering a child? You know, this growing up in India, I always thought that I would adopt a child because there's so many children in this world. We don't need to produce more. Uh, it was just vague thoughts, um, nothing concrete. Then when I came to New Zealand, you know, you get sort of into this whole process of settling in and making money and not making money, but sort of being stable. And then when I got back to thinking about myself as wanting to be a mother, it was not never far away from my mind. You know, I was single at that point uh, in my 40s. And I was thinking that maybe, you know, um, I should I should go to fertility specialists and see what's going on over there. And so I did all the stuff. I had a very good GP uh, who was very, very supportive. And she, um, you know, she did all the stuff I needed to do to be seen by specialists. Uh, but my AMH count was really low. So I, I was happy to, there were two things that I was going to do. I was happy to either get a sperm donation from the sperm bank or I asked around my friends if they were happy to donate. <laughs> and they would. Uh, they all were shocked. It was like, oh, no, 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 no. Maybe not. I need to think about it kind of thing. You know, I was like, it's okay, no responsibility, everything is me. And they were, I think some women asking upfront about it can shock quite a few people. Yeah, so that didn't work out. And then my AMH count was really low, which meant that I had perhaps stopped ovulating at some point and I was having anovulatory cycles. I don't know. I mean, as long as, you know, with women, if you're menstruating regularly, we don't really think about ovulation, right? So I, I just, you know, I, I didn't qualify for anything and I, I just let it go. And then I thought to myself, you know, back when I was a child, well, I was a teenager, perhaps in my early 20s as well, I thought I was going to adopt. So why don't I look at that process again? I did a little bit of research. I spoke to a few people on those numbers, those 0800 numbers that you get uh, in, the, in the sort of the New Zealand, you know, care sort of area. And I was put on to workshops with the agencies. So it's not Oranga Tamariki. There's a different agency called CARE that looks after adoption processes. And I went through these workshops. I had a social worker allotted to me who assessed me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost a year-long process, a very emotional process because you have to dig deep inside yourself to find out more about yourself. Yeah, but then I was approved. Uh, you know, I was approved for uh, international um, adoption. I was approved for domestic adoption as well. And I mean, if you've lived, you've lived in Aotearoa and you know it's quite difficult to adopt domestically because, you know, women want to keep their children with them. Fair enough. Um, so... I, you know, yeah, everything got approved and then I got my medicine stuff also approved at the same time. So I had to move to Wellington. Even then I went through some meetings with people and then, I, but I had to go to the hospital for 18 months to 
be able to qualify to get into the GP program, you know, for the fellowship program. I, I mean, I, I honestly, I am saying this on the podcast. I really dislike working at hospitals. I had worked back in India. It's not my space. It's not the, the hours I want to work. It's, um, yeah, it's just a different kind of medical practice. It's not connected to people and community. Uh, I, I mean, you know, kudos to people who do it, but there's a lot of bullying and there's a lot of sort of insensitive stuff. Um, there's definitely no care towards our Tangata Fenua. There's no care towards the Pacifica communities. Even the Indian doctors who work just emulate their white Pakiha bosses. The Irish and English graduates who come in don't really give a damn. It's like it's just a job for them. Uh, there's no attachment to the Tangata or the people. But any yes, so I, I I just didn't have the hours to dedicate to mothering, motherhood. But once I finished my hospital, I went back to my, you know, got back to the agencies and I said, I'm ready to go in for the adoption process. So the only thing I could do was apply to India. It's very difficult to adopt in India at this point. Historically, Indians have been adopted out to um, culturally different families. So there's a generation of Indians growing up in the Western world now who have been brought up by white parents, which, as we know, is not correct. And India was making all those changes, rules, whatever else. Then they stopped adoption for a while. When in 2014, I think, when the Modi government um, came in power, they stopped adoption for a while. I think they were relooking at all the rules. And then they restarted adoption around 2016, I think, 2017. And so I, you know, I was told about it and I said, okay, let, let, let's do this. Because again, it's, it's matched to your age. So I couldn't get a, a, a young child. I would have had to take somebody who is matching my age according to some random criteria set up by the government of India. There was no logic in it. There was no nothing. Um, Except that obviously they prefer Indian parents. So I completely got that. And we, you know, we put in my application just before my 50th birthday because that meant that I had applied before the age of 50, which means I would get a six-year-old, six, seven-year-old. And I had asked to adopt a boy because after my father died, we were all girls in the family. So, um, you know, thinking of energy, male energy, female energy, balancing, all of those Perhaps people might think it's woo-woo, I don't. So I'd ask for a boy. But then they suddenly, I think it was beginning of 2018, they asked for psychometric assessment, the government of India. And my social worker couldn't understand why, because I, according to her, it's really quite out of fashion. And there were other ways that they could assess. And there were no psychometric assessments happening in New Zealand at that time. It was, there was one woman who was doing it in uh, Wellington. I spoke to her on the phone and I just did not like her attitude. It was like, she talked to me about her high fees and then she said, well, you can afford it, you're a doctor. <laughs> I thought nobody speaks to even the most rich patient you have nobody speaks like that to any client and I was just really reluctant 
And I said to myself that I, I'm coming up to Auckland for the Writers' Festival. I'll look for somebody over there who will assess me. This was 2018. But then I suddenly, one Friday afternoon, I get a, a, an email from my social worker saying, hey, look, Oranga Tamariki are looking uh, for a permanent family for this Indian boy. And she sent me photos and, you know, I mean, you've seen his photos on Facebook. It was a very charming smile. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you know, um, I was getting somebody domestically. I did not have to worry about going to India, all of the burden that comes with it. And I knew it was going to be difficult. So I was coming up to Auckland. We had a meeting with Oranga Tamariki, their social worker, my so you know, social worker from the, the adoption agency all the caregivers, whoever else. Uh, yeah, and it, it just worked out fine. They literally, you know, I know they were so desperate to find an Indian family who, it's difficult because Indians, traditionally, historically, Indians don't adopt. If they do, they're not going to adopt somebody whom they don't know completely at all, who, you know, who's had a traumatic childhood uh, with you know parents um neglecting a child yeah so it's it's been a great process since then very difficult very challenging but I think to me I wouldn't have it any other way so most people get nine months to get used to the idea and it sounds like this happened really quickly so how, how is the adjustment going for you Yes, our transition was over a month. So I would come to Auckland on the weekends where I would, you know, I was, well, first they created a document introducing me to the child, explaining, you know, why you have been uplifted and why you are now with a transitional family. He'd had multiple placements before, which did not work out for several reasons with Indian families from his background, you know, his Fakapapa is from well, India, but also Fiji. So Fakapapa would be, I suppose, in the Indian way. What, 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 how would you describe it? It's a, it's a terrier word. It's such a, it's such a beautiful word, isn't it? Um, yes, it's exactly, yeah. Yeah. So your ancestral connections. Correct. Yes. But that's I, right. I, 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 I don't, I don't know. My Konkani isn't good enough to even try and conceptualize that, you know, yes. because there are words for every single kind of relationship, whether it's your brother's wife or your sister's husband. But, but yeah, they're, they're very detailed, very specific names for everything, aren't they? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think Papa is such a fabulous word that I don't think culturally, at least not where I come from in India, I don't think we have that because it's, it's, it's deeper than just your ancestors by relation, right? It's, it's bigger than that. Yeah. So when he, we had a month's transition and then he landed at my doorstep while I went to pick him up <laughs> at my, you know, uh, on the um, September 2018. 1st of September 2018 and, and my mother was there with the big arti, you know, when he sort of stepped in. It was, it was in, according to the Hindu calendar, it was Krishna's birthday that day. So it was, it was all really nice and auspicious, but I had taken leave from work, which I could. Now here is the thing, New Zealand that year, uh, I think the Labour government came in 2017, yes. So I had just that year started the six-month maternity leave. 
and you could apply for six months maternity leave even if you are fostering or have adopted but it is only for a child who's less than six years old so i had to take a pay cut and i had to you know it's all okay i think everything works out for the best this is more important but i mean these are all the little little things that when governments make rules they don't these these are just narrow definitions of family and adoption and you know uh, relationships and all of that which i think need to progress as we move along but it was there that i couldn't take 6 months leave uh which i would have loved to yeah so i think i was away for 4 weeks or something but the child was really eager to get back to school he loves he loves school so i was like okay well you know um that's good i can go for work now <laughs> yes and we we've we've managed you know there are moments really really difficult moments and every time i have to remind myself that even if this was a biological child it's quite possible i would have had those moments you know because i see so many parents in my clinical work clinical practice who've had who you know it's just parenting is difficult so um yeah i yeah nine months i think is just an infant and so you can build those neural pathways as you go along if if you already have awareness of that fostering a child i'm i, I we are working really hard to shift those neural pathways some of them are very hardwired uh which is where the challenges come up some attitudes behaviors post traumatic sort of behavior yeah they, you don't need a trigger for things to just come up yeah so i i think with the with the biological child and i mean i'm not sort of minimizing the effort or anything like that you a lot of parents these days think about what they want to do um some parents can't some mothers can't afford to do that it's it's still a privileged way of thinking you know looking how you want to look after a child and some mothers can't afford to do that they're busy doing two or three jobs just to survive no time to think about a child's neural pathways <laughs> and i got a child with who had already had this and we are now in the process of shifting that and you know ultimately for me it's about him growing up into being a good human being a kind considerate empathetic human being i don't measure and want to measure success with how much money they make when they grow up yeah so there might be people listening who don't really understand neural pathways can you explain that for our listeners yeah sure i can you know i'm a gp so i can't i'll try to keep it really simple is that as as soon as an infant is born i think even even when they're in the womb uh the mother's behavior starts affecting the the growth and development of the child's brain as soon as a child is born the the kind of warmth and the connections that we build with this infant helps to develop different centers in the brain and how they connect with each other and this is why we say that the mom should be holding the child and you know the breastfeeding needs to be done or if some women cannot breastfeed for various reasons they still can hold the child you know all of those things and um if that infant does not get the required amount of warmth and tenderness 
and sort of belonging, then those pathways are, they're not, they don't grow in the way we hope for them to be developed. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's all kinds of people that that can provide and organizations that can provide support, which I'll put in the show notes as well, you know, that kind of interest in those first thousand days as well, you know, how important they are, as well as the bonding and and so on. What did you think about the first episode of series four, where I talked to Indy and Jacinta about adoption? What what did you think of it? I listened to the episode, I thought it was Excellent. They had some pertinent points to make. My conceptual thinking over here would be that it's just really important that to also consider that there might be situations where involving Fano is not healthy for the child. Let me just put it that way. So um, because the child has not had the opportunity to develop their um, pathways, the neural pathways in the first, you know, 3000 days of their life. Being with Fano and and therefore agencies having a focus on the child is still very pertinent. We should not dismiss it completely. That is my um yeah perspective. Yeah. So you've been on a on a big learning curve by the sounds of it, and um, you're also on these other curves in your work and in your filmmaking what gives you joy you know because because a lot of these things that you're talking about sound like you know all these things that you're doing you know being a single parent being a doctor and um, having a kind of filmmaking practice directing practice creative practice they all take up time so what brings you joy and inspiration Oh, gosh. I tell you what I did two days ago. I bought a Hello Kitty purse (laughs) on Etsy. (laughs) You know, that's my fun thing. Yes. Makeup, nice clothes, you know, uh, uh, yes. Hello Kitty, you know, she's a little bit younger than me, but and she doesn't have a mouth and we can have this whole podcast on the feminist sort of point of view of Hello Kitty, but whatever, you know. I like to own all of these things. I I love movies, watching movies and TV shows, reading books, you know, simple things. Um, I do miss traveling a lot. I love to travel, but because of COVID now, you know, it's it's also a real privilege to travel. So I acknowledge that, that not everybody can do that. And I, But, you know, I hope to start traveling again soon. But um, yes, I, I get joy in the weirdest kind of things. I love to cook. It's difficult because my mother lives with me and being an Indian woman of a specific generation, the kitchen is her domain. And obviously, I am still, according to her, a terrible cook. So... But I still I still do enjoy the so Sunday evening meals are my responsibility. So I do enjoy cooking. I those are my little joys, you know. I love gardening. I love to talk to my plants. I love all these little things. I'm an introvert by nature, so I don't really like to hang out with people having just rubbish conversations. I yeah. <laughs> you know that. It's it's hard. It's a lot of energy being consumed. Now, is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about as we wrap up? 
I think for me, we spoke about equity before, and I, I can talk about about it very briefly. You know, through I mean, in both my um, creative work and my medical practice, uh, I see this this disequilibrium. Um, I see the health system is truly, truly broken. And I see people who take advantage of the free health system that we have, whereas it's really not reaching the people who, whom we should be reaching. Uh, it's the same with my creative practice. I see funding going to people who've already proved themselves in a way, and it's just lip service. And it's just very frustrating for me in both the areas. I don't know how this can be sorted. Um, I would love to be part of policy making in the health sector, particularly primary care. I mean, people can't even afford an $18 fee to see the doctor, you know, let alone go and buy medications that cost $5 each. And then we have people who come in demanding blood tests just for the sake of it with no understanding that this is a free health system because they perceive it as their right. They perceive it as their right because they're a taxpayer. And and for me, is this, this is not how it works. You know, you're healthy, that's wonderful, but we're paying tax for everybody else's benefit too. It's the same in the creative world. So um, I don't have an answer to that. I don't know how we can create this equity, but I think just by talking about it and then trying to get into these different sort of policy-making groups Perhaps I can make that change or at least initiate the change. And it's the same with my activism as well. Uh, when I talk about, um, you know, speak up about what is going on in India at this point is, is, again, it goes back to, for me, being a doctor and my clinical work is inherently about human condition. You know, I can't be a doctor and not think about injustices because you can't cannot create that equity without rectifying those injustices. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah, and it's it's that inverse care law, right? Like the people that need the least take the most in healthcare and the people that need to receive the care don't get it, you know? And, and the good thing is that what you're saying contributes to a bigger conversation that's been happening in this podcast. You know, Donna Cormack um, had the same point when talking about tangata whenua and perinatal mortality and morbidity, you know? And so th- this is the the choir that I'm trying to create on the podcast is that that we're all saying the same thing in different ways that where people will hear and and I think also you know we need to talk about whose voices get heard the most how we bring in other voices you know who gets you know the the biggest slices of of the health pie you know the birthing services pie who misses out and and same with you know creative practice who's getting the money and who's not? And and what I'm hoping is that this podcast contributes to that conversation, you know, and people are using it in, in midwifery um, undergraduate programs. And, and that makes me really happy because everything I've tried so far has, has had a very short term kind of impact. And, and that's why I was keen to talk to you because you're someone who has the health background, but is also using sound, you know, and you're 
connecting storytelling with your practice as a GP. And I think that that's a very important story that needs to be told. So I'm very grateful to you, Sapna, for taking the time this morning to to do that with us and to share some very personal, very poignant, um, very vulnerable uh, stories about your own mothering, but also your experience of being a GP and your passionate commitment to equity. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And Sapna, we're, the, the last question I have for you is where can listeners find more of your work or how, how do they find you or connect with you online? Okay. Oh gosh. Um, so I, at this point, I'm not really active on radio, you know, or, or in the sort of the audio world, but they can look for old, um, the Asian radio show episodes, which are on, um, Mixcloud. I'll, I'll send you a link so people can listen to that stuff that I produce. There will be a Radio New Zealand series coming out soon on the youth, uh, website which I am producing with a wonderful, very talented team of young people who are talking about young people. And then I'm this film, hopefully, I mean, that's going to take some time for them to grade, isn't it? Three to four months, I think. But um, I'm hoping to, this is the other thing that's going to give me joy is to work with a, um, start my own podcast where I'm going to talk to South Asian creatives about their practice. And through that, I'm hoping to weave their politics and activism as well. Not just not just about, you know, where they talk about uh, diversity for the sake of it. And, you know, that gets really boring, as you know. Uh, I just really want to, yes, I just really want to talk about the deeper aspects of their work. Yeah, that's what I want to do. It was an honour to listen to Sapna's unique experience of working within two very different fields and to be let into some of the really personal elements of her motherhood journey. Next time on Birthing and Justice. Being separated from that knowledge is in a way being separated from a part of ourselves and leads to all kinds of internal resentment and ugliness, which of course patriarchy um, encourages and feeds on. I'll be speaking with the amazing Hannah Donnelly and her partner Omar Saker. Hannah Donnelly is an award-winning Wiradjuri writer and producer interested in Indigenous futures, speculative fiction and responses to climate trauma. Omar Saker is the son of Arab and Turkish Muslim immigrants and author of three poetry collections and a novel. His latest book, Non-Essential Work, will be out later this year. If you enjoyed this episode, let me know by leaving a review and spread the word by telling a friend. You can listen to all our previous episodes over at ruthdesouza.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Birthing and Justice with Dr. Ruth D'Souza is written, hosted and produced by me and recorded at my home on the traditional lands of the Bunmarung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Our sound design is by our editor, Olivia Smith. The artwork for the show comes from Atong Atom and was designed by Ethan Sang and Raquel Solia composed our music. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you in our next episode.